Welcome to Now Playing's G.I. Joe Movie Retrospective Series. Mission is a go. I say again, the mission is a go. Hosted by Jerry. I'll make you proud. You'll see. Arnie. He's a real American hero. And Jacob. Hey, my three favorite people. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Ay, caramba! Listener discretion is advised. Let's get to work. World ain't saving itself. He never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. American hero. Today we're discussing G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Starring Channing Tatum, Sienna Miller, Marlon Wayans, Dennis Quaid, Ray Park, and directed by Steven Summers. I'm Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who's here to review this movie. Oh, you ask me in what army? My army! This is Jacob, a real American podcaster. Hey, this is Jerry. I've got lifelike hair and a kung fu grip. And we are back discussing G.I. Joe, the live-action film that did come with the very clumsy subtitle, The Rise of Cobra, came out back in 2009. And I'll admit, when this came out, I had some interest. I go to Toy Fair every year to cover the new toys that are coming out, and I went the year this came out, and Hasbro had me literally locked in a room that I couldn't leave and forced me to watch scenes of it, and I went, you know, that doesn't look so bad and i was excited for this didn't see it in theaters but it did see it when it was new on video yeah i didn't see this in theaters either i was feeling it i might have been able to go with it i wasn't hating the idea even though they came out with these full body posters where all the joes are wearing black maybe they're really cobra that's why this is the rise of cobra but like you arnie i did eventually see this once it came out on dvd I saw this movie the day it came out and proceeded to see it two other times. So I ended up seeing this movie three times in theaters. And admittedly, I actually went as far because there was a lot of rumors behind what this movie was and wasn't. And a little bit of controversy of the movie among the G.I. Joe fans based on everything people were hearing. And I actually read the novelization of this movie about a month before it came out. And it actually made me more optimistic in seeing it. So we'll see where that took me. But this came out in a fairly crowded summer, 2009. This is where The Hangover really came out of nowhere, took over. Up was doing Pixar's thing. Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen was out that summer and was second of that year only to Avatar. So it was a pretty big box office year, but it was also one that was mired because the films coming out were almost universally impacted by the writer's strike the year before. G.I. Joe was no different. They rushed the script and rushed the production to get in before both the writer's strike and the actor's strike that would later occur. And the result was this coming out in late summer of 09, starring Marlon Wayans, who I know from a lot of bad movies like Scary Movie and Little Man and White Chicks, but who I also know from some good movies like Requiem for a Dream. I think good movie. I don't know if he has another one there. I'm really going through it. I'm like Dungeons and Dragons. No, just the one. Norbit. Yeah, just the one. (laughs) I think it does set a tone when Marlon Wayans is in it. You're obviously going for a certain thing there with him in a starring role. Almost, is this going to be a comedy? Is it going to be his head pasted on a little baby's body or something like that? To me, it's a warning sign. This is not going to be a serious take on G.I. Joe. They want to do some humor here. 
Admittedly, though, the one thing I didn't mind about it is when I learned that he was Ripcord. Because Ripcord is not a big character. I was more concerned that Duke's buddy in the movie was going to be Ripcord. It's like, where do you pull out Ripcord from the G.I. Joe universe and make him your buddy in the movie? But the good news is, there's nothing you could really do to ruin Ripcord, because who cares about Ripcord? I don't even remember who Ripcord was. But the reason I bring up Marlon Wayans specifically is... Of the leading actors in this cast, I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, we got a Wayans brother. We got the long-haired kid from Third Rock from the Sun. We've got Darth Maul. We've got Dennis Quaid. And we've got Sienna Miller, who I heard good things about in the tabloids. (laughs) Come on, we had Channing Tatum. Who was Channing Tatum when this movie came out, though? Channing Tatum today is a superstar. Channing Tatum, the rumor is they're recutting the entire film coming out this Friday to give him a bigger part because he is such a star. But when G.I. Joe came out in 2009, I hadn't heard of him. Now, Jacob, you probably had because you're a big Step Up fan. I'm not. Well, already I wasn't a Step Up fan, I don't think, at this time. But yes, he was the star of the 2006 Step Up. And we'll get a Step Up connection next week when we get into the director for the new G.I. Joe film, John Chu. But yeah, he was big with the teenage girls because they loved the Step Up. And he had a bit role in Step Up too. But yeah, I think that was his biggest thing up until this point. Strangely, we've actually reviewed a movie with him in it. He was apparently somewhere in War of the Worlds. Well, he must have been one of those citizens, like, running around that got fried at some point by the aliens. So, yeah, that's why I'm focusing on Marlon Wayans, because he was, God help me, my in. And also at this point, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Again, he would go on to become a huge star, a well-respected actor. I think he owes a lot of his mainstream reputation to Christopher Nolan. But he was earning quite a bit of indie cred after leaving the small screen during this time with films like Brick and 500 Days of Summer. But you tell me the long-haired kid from Third Rock from the Sun is going to be Cobra Commander, and I'm like, what, in the six-foot blonde who's Baroness? You get Lithgow as Destro? The the funny thing is, I've seen this before, and I forgot Joseph Gordon-Levitt was even in this film. Which is crazy, because as we're getting to the story, it's kind of a big deal. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt would like it if you'd forget he was in this film. (laughs) He's not in the next one. Cobra Commander is. Of course, he wasn't really on my mind in 2009 at this point. Inception hadn't come out, and that's what really reminded me of him. I had stopped watching Third Rock from the Sun reruns by this point. I certainly didn't know Channing Tatum, Rachel Nichols. I didn't know any of these people, and that was fine. I kind of appreciated that mixture of I don't have any preconceived notions of who these people are, so they might as well be Duke and Scarlet and Ray Park being Snake Eyes. Well, that's just awesome for a bunch of Star Wars fans, right? That's freaking Darth Maul being Snake Eyes. I mean, why not? At this moment, Ray Park becomes the coolest individual in the history of actors as he's in Star Wars, X-Men, and G.I. Joe. Yeah, he's a Sith Lord and he's Snake Eyes. And Toad. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I'm ignoring the fact he was Toad, but yes. (laughs) All right, he didn't have the coolest role in X-Men, but he was in X-Men. Well, we know what Ray Park did as Toad in X-Men, but Arnie, why don't you tell us what he does here in G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra? Give us a plot. G.I. Joe is an international military organization consisting of all the best disciplines, from ninja snake eyes to communications expert breaker. They're a secret task force to defend freedom on Earth, but they face their biggest challenge yet when mercenary organization Cobra begins a terrorist plot to become the most powerful group in the world. 
in the most convoluted manner in the world. Led by arms dealer James McCullen, their plot is multifaceted. A Cobra scientist known only as the Doctor has created nanomites, microscopic machines that when injected into people create Cobra's mindless, fearless Viper soldiers. But when weaponized in a warhead, the nanomites can destroy all material, destroying entire cities without any casualties. McCullen sells four of these nanomite warheads to NATO, but then plots to steal them back to be used in their terror plot. They will use a nanomite warhead in Paris, destroying the Eiffel Tower and instilling fear worldwide. The terrorized world leaders will turn to the USA for leadership, but Cobra will replace the presidents of the United States with Zartan, a master of disguise who the nanomites have altered to be physically identical to the presidents. We follow this plot through the eyes of Duke and Ripcord, two army soldiers put in charge of the warheads when Cobra first attempts to steal them back. They're inducted into the Joes due to Duke's previous romantic relationship with Anna, a Cobra operative who's codenamed the Baroness and is also McCullen's lover. Now here's where it gets really kind of convoluted in the backstory that we see in flashbacks throughout. Years ago, Ripcord, Duke, and science officer Rex were fellow soldiers and friends. Duke was also in love with Anna, who's Rex's sister. Before one of their missions, Duke and Anna get engaged, but on the mission, Rex is killed and it drives a wedge between the two lovers. But in reality, Rex didn't die, he lived. He was in a bunker where he encountered Dr. Mindbender, who was the true creator of the Nanomites, and Rex was so enthralled by the technology, he stayed in the bunker to download the data and got locked in when the bomb went off. He was presumed dead, but he lived on with a scarred face known as the Doctor, continuing Mindbender's nanomite research. He used nanomites to inject the Baroness and turn her evil against her will, even making her set up her own husband, the Baron, for death. You guys following all this? Oh, we'll be discussing it, <laughs> if I followed it or not. <laughs> But if that isn't enough, Cobra Ninja Agent Storm Shadow has a history with G.I. Joe Ninja Agent Snake Eyes because they both trained under the old Sensei, and Storm Shadow always felt Snake Eyes was unworthy of the ninja training and jealous of Snake Eyes' superior skills. So eventually a spurned Storm Shadow killed their Sensei and ran off to be evil, but they get to fight again here. So to Cobra's plot, they fire the Nanomites in Paris, but Duke stops them before all of Paris is destroyed, and Duke is taken captive by Cobra, with McCullen planning not to kill him, but instead to turn him into a mindless Viper soldier. But the Joes launch a mission to infiltrate Cobra's base, rescue Duke, and stop Cobra. Cobra launches the warheads, but Ripcord shoots them down before they can cause damage. Meanwhile, faced with killing her former lover, Anna overcomes her programming, and in a fight between Duke and McCullen, McCullen's face is burned. Snake Eyes kills Storm Shadow and the Joes are victorious but Cobra plans on. To fix McCullen's face, the Doctor injects him with nanomites, but that makes McCullen the Doctor's slave, and the Doctor now is the ruler of Cobra. He puts a fishbowl on his head and calls himself Cobra Commander, while the nanomites turn McCullen's face to metal and he refers to himself as Destro. Meanwhile, Zartan is firmly implanted in the White House, having successfully replaced the U.S. President as credits roll. It's a hell of a plot. A hell of a plot. It is a plot that makes James Bond fans look and go, damn, that's convoluted. 
<laughs> and if that G.I. Joe, the movie, had 84 different characters in it, I feel like this Rise of Cobra has 84 different flashbacks in it, trying to set up all these different relationships. And it starts off with a flashback. We start off in ancient Scotland or France. What's going on here? It is France. I got that. Because here we have James McCullen, a great, 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 great grandfather to Destro being tried for arms dealers. And I guess nobody told young James McCullen because those who don't learn the past are doomed to repeat it. But while I understand what is happening, why is this scene here? Is this whole scene here to explain why eventually Destro will call himself Destro? Did they get an entire scene, an entire set of actors, and spend an entire prologue just to explain away a name? Well, here's the thing, Ernie. I mean, this is called The Rise of Cobra, but there's no Cobra in this until the very end. This is McCullen's movie. He's the bad guy putting everything into motion. He doesn't know the Doc is back there getting ready to take over and undermine him, etc., etc. So I think there's two things here. It kind of sets up, to me, who McCullen is. The kind of choices he makes, selling arms to both sides. He alludes to it later about, hey, it's not that you don't sell to both sides. Don't get caught doing it. I don't think that in of itself was enough. But then it's also a good throwback to folks like me who kind of know this story about McCullen. And when the movie started off this way, I was like, wow. So this is canon? Well, the whole concept of was he selling to the French and against the French and, you know, this particular scenario, not necessarily, but we have seen the whole ancestry of Destro and coming from a long line of arms dealers and the mask is a symbol of the family and the family wears it now to kind of honor how their ancestors were disgraced by having to wear it as punishment. So kind of, yeah, when I first saw this, I was like, wow, they're actually pulling that out, setting up Destro kind of in a normal normal way, which is odd to say about a guy with a metal face, but I recognize this. I know what's going on. This goes out of the gate as being G.I. Joe, and I get it. It's weird. I feel like I'm watching the man in the iron mask at the beginning here, and I I don't know what this has to do with G.I. Joe. I think they set it up fine in the regular not-too-distant future that we'll jump to in a minute here, that, yes, he's selling to both sides and you don't get caught, and he has an iron mask on his desk. He's like, this should remind me not to get caught. I don't feel that there's real payoff here, and that's going to be a continuing theme through many of these flashbacks that I see in this film, that there's really no payoff, and it it feels like they could have been cut. It starts off this way for me. You know what, though, Jacob? Now that Jerry tells me this is from G.I. Joe lore, this scene makes sense being here. Because if you think about it, a year before, we had Iron Man. And Iron Man strikes me as definitely an evolution in storytelling where you take something from comic books. And as Jerry said last week, G.I. Joe, this incarnation really started in Marvel Comics. And when you bring it to the big screen, you put in all these little Easter eggs that traditionally you may not put in a movie. But it's something that enriches the universe, it makes the fans happy, and it informs the new So rather than truncating Destro's entire backstory by including it in this way, I can actually understand now why they do it. It still does make me think, like you said, that we're going to watch The Man in the Iron Mask, and I don't think it's entirely necessary, but... I can see why they do it. Thank you for that explanation. I can see why they're doing it once a fan explains it to me. Sitting down and watching this as a film, it seems extraneous. It doesn't need to be here for storytelling. That's all I'm saying. I'm glad Jerry's happy about this scene. To me, it's wasting time. I want to get to these army dudes that fight. 
I agree with you, Jacob, that it didn't have to be here, but I think whether you know it or not, you probably understand McCullen's character a little bit better. Although, I think they could have set it up fine. I don't think the whole thing about his face turning metal at the end was as powerful if you didn't see this at the beginning, because both of them kind of came about that in very similar ways, in whichever one of you just said it. This James McCullen didn't learn anything from his family, and he suffered the same fate. So, the movie sort of ended the way it began, and I think it was kind of cool. I'll say this. Once they say McCollin and then we jump to great, 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 great grandson McCollin selling arms, I'm like, okay, this is Destro. And I'm scared now. I'm like, at some point, he's going to be putting on this stupid iron mask and running around. This is going to be the worst Destro ever. So having a passing familiarity, it actually scares me. I don't want to see this guy running around in this awful looking mask as Destro. I kind of do. And let me explain why. I gotta ask, who is Christopher Eccleston, and has an uglier man ever been chosen to be the lead villain in a movie? Perhaps a guy that you want to see be put in an iron mask? I have no idea who this guy is. One of the things I will say about Destro, if you just remember him from last week, he's kind of a bigger, tougher, low voice. He's very menacing and intimidating on so many levels. And then we get this guy. I would have appreciated someone a little more physically impressive even before getting the metalhead. Sure, he's a great business guy and he's sort of sly that way, but Destro should scare the crap out of you just seeing him. Well, they went with a classically trained English actor. I'm guessing they chose English in order to carry down an accent among the Destro line, but I just saw last week animated Destro, and he didn't talk like a Frenchie, so... I think they could have gone with an American, and this guy, yeah, I have seen him. I had to look him up on IMDb. I've seen him in Existence and a couple other things 28 days later. Jacob, we're going to see him again later this year. He's in Thor The Dark World, but here as Destro, and for this movie, he's the lead villain. I would think you want someone who's, yes, either more imposing or more charismatic, This guy's supposedly sleeping with Baroness, and we're not supposed to know until the end that he was slipping her a Mickey to do so, a nanomite Mickey. I would think we would want somebody who it is a shame when his face is destroyed, a pretty guy, not him, where, okay, sorry, look about the same. So if you're not taking him by his good looks... Let's talk about his brains, because I want to wrap my head around this plan of his. So we get this talk about nanomites, and I wish there was another word, there was a thesaurus for nanomites, because here's a drinking game. Take a shot every time they say nanomites in this film. (laughs) It's almost as common as when they say yo-jo in that last one. The word just starts sticking out to me. But they have these nanomites, they eat, is it just metal, or they could eat any material? I think it's however you program them, because McCullen described how they were originally created to fight cancer cells. So it's like, they are the catch-all, whatever thing I want to go do, nanomites can do it. Yes. All right. So he's selling these nanomite warheads to NATO, which he plans on stealing back. Why doesn't he just make more? My thing was, why doesn't he just give them fake ones? We find out that these have to be weaponized. I don't understand that. You're going to sell me a weapon that I can't even use till you know, it's, it's like you buy a Wii, you got to buy a nunchuck or a guitar to play Guitar Hero. It's like you got to buy all these add-ons for hey, the thing. they're coming out with new consoles this year. Don't give them ideas. <laughs> no, the PlayStation 3 was already kind of like that, but go ahead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he's going to sell them the weapon, then steal it back. Well, just sell them a fake one. 
and use the real ones? Or why does he need to sell it? He just wants the money, too, before he destroys the world? I don't understand his plan here right at the beginning. There's a few things that I kind of feel like the movie gives you enough to just create a premise, and then you can either go with it or you don't. And I'm not going to say I understand this, but after the Baroness doesn't succeed in getting them, McCullen makes it a point that it had to look like NATO's fault. So he got the money partially or fully from NATO to create them in the first place, which... He had enough money to build, like, an entire city under the Arctic, but okay, apparently he needs money to go fund his research. But he gets the money from NATO and had to make it look like, for some reason, and I won't say I understand, that it was NATO that lost them. It's never explained in the novelization better? You know, there's a reason I am not doing this for Books and Nachos, because there are only <laughs> subtle differences. It's not worth doing, and thus I didn't go back and reread it almost four years later. I don't recall there being anything more in-depth about the plot. But apparently it's to his benefit for it to look like the world leaders are kind of at fault for it being taken from them. Or it was, hey, it was taken from you guys. I fulfilled my end of the bargain. I don't know if he just wants to look squeaky clean, like he can be one of the people. I, I think the movie does actually kind of a good job of leaving it unclear enough that you think the plot is that, hey, he's going to create this war and everyone's just going to come to him for help. Duke says as much later, and that's not the case. So maybe it's a little misdirect. It's certainly flawed, but at least he throws out there it had to look like NATO's fault. We don't know why it had to look like NATO's fault, but I feel like they try a little bit to kind of just, okay, here's the first 10 minutes we're establishing this. Either go with this or don't. Actually, I would think that it would hurt his plan to make NATO look at fault because the U.S. is one of the leading members of NATO. The whole point is to create an atmosphere of terror so that the world looks to the president of the United States and go, what the hell do we do now? But if you make the president look incompetent, then I don't think that that's going to necessarily work. As far as the money goes, you do have it right there because I remember there's the scene where the doctor is squabbling with Destro about money and needing more money and Destro's running low on funds. So he needed the money to continue what he was doing, let alone what's going to come later. So selling them, I guess, makes sense. Again, if you have a factory of them, I don't know, maybe you just inflate the price and tell them it's going to cost a double so you can make eight, but... But he can't even weaponize them, right? Yeah. Like, he can only kind of make it this weapon. He can't actually make it do what he says it's going to do. And that would be the other thing that would make sense, is if he was giving it to the Americans, and the Americans would weaponize them, and then he needs to steal it back. But no, this movie needs to go ahead and explain the reason we call her the Baroness is because she married a Baron. Baron de Cobre! I'm like, oh, man. Really? De Cobre? The Rise of Cobra? Okay. Pig Latin is a language you speak fluently, yes. I take it. <laughs> That would actually be Obra K, but <laughs> we won't get technical. The film doesn't want to. But meanwhile, we're introduced to our Joe heroes, Duke and Ripcord. And Jerry, you mentioned you didn't like that Ripcord was paired with Duke. For all I knew, they were best buds going back to grade school. So I'm fine with it. Actually, you know what? I ended up being okay because, again, like I said earlier, okay, make it Ripcord because I don't have any preconceived notions for Ripcord. I'm just glad that he wasn't someone like Roadblock. Roadblock's one of those characters is like, I know exactly what Roadblock looks like and should be like. Hey, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, man, there's a Roadblock for you, right? But don't make Marlon Wayans, for God's sakes, don't make him Roadblock. So I'm just glad he was somebody else at this point. I did think it was interesting that Duke here and Ripcord, they're not Joes yet. 
they're just in the army. And I guess this is the Rise of Cobra. It's setting me up like this is a prequel to the G.I. Joe universe, I know, I guess. So I thought it was weird that this is where they're starting at, but it does make sense. Let's introduce these characters to a bigger world. These are our in-characters, Duke and Ripcord. Thank goodness it's not Don Johnson as Falcon. <laughs> as entry characters, I took these two to be perfectly adequate. You had your hero and you had your funny one. I'll admit, I was reminded of Bayformers. Never a good thing when you see these kind of generic, ill-defined military types. But... They're good enough, and they're immediately put into action as they're carrying those warheads and attacked by Cobra. I may have preferred Channing Tatum to have been Falcon, though, because I think Duke is a type of character that needs to be a very specific way. He's kind of Boy Scouty, and Channing Tatum was sort of, oh, I don't want to say dumb, but he was just kind of the muscle head. He's like, hey, you know, hey, hey, we talked about this. They take this and great. I mean, he wasn't Duke. Is he good, generic, army, white guy hero? Yeah, fine. He's a big star now. Played out well. Maybe they're redoing the next movie to be a little bit more Duke-centric. Fine. But at first, it's not that I dislike this guy, but he's not exactly Duke. I do get what you're saying, but I'm willing to go with it because this is the rise of Cobra, and I also see that as the rise of G.I. Joe. And here we go. We get a big battle right here. It's not Joe's versus Cobra right away. It's Cobra versus the army, but we get this ambush uh, with lasers coming out of helicopters. It's this weird mix for me. You're going for this hardcore military thing with Duke and Ripcord, but then Cobra shows up and they're like these pulse cannon lasers. I'm still struggling to figure out how I feel about this. Do you go with the concept, the goofy sci-fi full board, or do you try to make it more realistic? I go with the sci-fi because it's the future. It's a few years from now. So of course all the (laughs) airplanes are going to be outfitted with lasers. Well, that's to sell the toys. But at the same time, it's still only the bad guys, and they call this out in the movie, it's only the bad guys that have this level of tech that no one's really seen before. So I'm sure someone, think the Summers even mentioned at some point that, hey, you know, some of this technology does actually kind of exist. I think he even used the it's science fact type cliche, but obviously it's not just outfitted to every helicopter you see flying around. So it's one of those things that maybe not be too terribly crazy, but yeah, it's a little weird. My problem was I wish that the bad guys here, and they're not Cobra, they're Mars people, I suppose. They have technology that I think is a little too good. I didn't even believe that G.I. Joe could come in here and beat them. G.I. Joe doesn't even seem like they have this level of tech. I kind of wish the Mars people weren't that advanced. And here is also where we get our first look of Sienna Miller as the Baroness. Best part of the film. Are you talking about her acting or her outfit? I'm talking about that outfit. I just don't know why Baroness, sexy foreign accent they take that away but the actress actually does have a sexy foreign accent (laughs) (laughs) like they did baroness but i'm gonna say baroness best part of this film you won't get any argument from me either because that outfit is something else now i'm starting to wonder if i have a fetish that even i don't know about between her and black widow but damn girl damn girl They certainly did a good job of, when you see Sienna Miller in this movie, you know she's the Baroness. No, no, I didn't know she was the Baroness. (laughs) Oh, come on. Arnie, do you know who the Baroness is? Again, I said Serrano was like a cartoon crush. The Baroness was a cartoon crush, too, for me. I guess G.I. Joe really just formed my uh, taste for women. (laughs) 
I like the bad girls. If you had any knowledge of G.I. Joe whatsoever, you should easily, instantly recognize her. If you're new to the whole universe and you know nothing about anything, G.I. Joe, okay, fine. Or haven't seen it in 20 years. Still, come on. She looks dead on. Either a good casting or a good costuming. I mean, they made her up to be like, boom, okay, fine. She's the Baroness. That one, I get. I gotta ask, though, so we find out right off the bat here that Duke and the Baroness know each other. He calls her Anna, and they have this whole backstory. Is this something from the comics? I know the comics didn't get into Cobra Law. Did it have more of this soap opera-like background stories where all these characters were interconnected like this? The comics have a lot of weird connections. I mean, it's almost soap opera-ish of like how the characters knew each other in the past. But Duke and Baroness was not one of them. This is a concept brand new to G.I. Joe folklore. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the early rumors. I remember hearing this before reading the book. I'm like, wait, what? That's not right. Duke and the Baroness, former... Okay, this thing's going off the rails. So that's one of the things that when the novelization came out, I just had to see what was going on. I couldn't wait for the movie. I had to see what was up here because that's never been explored before. Nor has Baroness and Cobra Commander being siblings ever been a concept either. I thought Baroness and Destro kind of had a flirtation. Am I thinking of somebody else? Oh, in the cartoon, those two were a thing, yeah. Yeah. In every version of Baroness and Destro, they've been an item on some level. Okay. That's consistent here, too, just for different reasons. It's mind control, like you're saying, so they at least kind of maintain that on the surface. So as this fight goes on, now the Joes, the real Joes, show up. We get Snake Eyes, we get Scarlet, Heavy Duty, Breaker. Question, though, Snake Eyes. I don't want to have any nerd rage or anything. What is with this molded face in his mask? Why does he need to have lips? Was this a big thing in the, with the G.I. Joe fandom? Did this upset them? Because it upset me, because Snake Eyes is like the most awesome ninja ever. He just looks weird now. I would say that fans probably aren't very happy with it, but I don't know if I'd go as far as calling it a deal breaker. I think it could have been done better, but overall, again, you still get that it's Snake Eyes. Now, there were some problems on set between what Summers wanted to do, what Hasbro felt like was right for Snake Eyes, and then what the studios wanted. I mean, Hasbro had to intervene a little bit for it to be that good. They felt like that was, yep, that's a good Snake Eyes. That good? Yeah, but even for me, the fan, I get that this is a flawed take on Snake Eyes, but it's not so bad that I reject it. Maybe I'm being too easy on it. Who wears a mask where the lips are molded that way? I don't know how that possibly works or why you'd do that, but it's not the worst thing I've seen. I'm kind of with Jerry on this one. I saw lips and I'm like, oh... That's a interesting style choice and thought no further of it because, again, like Jerry said, I'm going to back him up. Ray Park is a badass. I stand by that the Darth Maul versus Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon fight is the single best lightsaber fight in the entire Star Wars saga. It doesn't have the most emotional weight, and it was almost bested by Episode 3, but for pure choreography and pure amazing stunts, it is the best Star Wars lightsaber fight. And here, Ray Park is getting a chance to do it all over again with a sword instead of a saber, but as soon as he starts doing his moves, who's looking at his lips? Well, I know I'm looking at Scarlet's lips as she shows up. I mean, you got the Baroness, you got Scarlet. Man, I... I know a cat fight's coming. <laughs> yes. 
Hopefully. Since we keep bringing up Star Wars, like, Chewbacca has a laser crossbow. Is her crossbow, it's shooting lasers, right? It shoots out a heat-seeking missile arrow that, like, seeks out one of the Vipers and goes through his little eye hole, blows up his head. I guess the Joes have some kind of future tech. What I do find interesting, one of the jokes about G.I. Joe is that no one ever dies. There's all those lasers flying around. They are blowing off people's heads. It's not graphic, and you don't know if those Vipers are, at this point, humans or robots or what, but... They do kill people, and we'll see some graphic violence against the Joes later on in the film. That was a nice acknowledgement that this was going to grow up a little bit. Oh, yeah, you didn't have anybody jumping out of those helicopters, you know, after they got slammed with those uh, sonic laser whatever plasma weapons. I almost thought they should have done that just as a throwback. God knows they have throwbacks to the series. They mentioned (laughs) Kung Fu Grip. At one point, somebody says knowing is half the battle. I would have loved it if they just had a gratuitous parachute shot just for that reason. (laughs) But yeah, we get four Joes here. Scarlet, what's her power? I never quite get that other than she's somehow able to withstand Marlon Wayans' charms. I guess that's a superpower. She's hot and she has a crossbow. <laughs> she's very intelligent. She's the intelligence officer. Um, here, though, she's like Doogie Hauser. Like, I mean, what they say that she graduated college at 12 and she's got this whole perfection type things. And like, you know, none of them technically have superpowers. I mean, yes, Snake Eyes kind of does, but he's risen to that level over the years. But none of the rest of them have superpowers. They have specialties. So she's just a highly skilled soldier. And she obviously had later on talked about being the record holder for that little marksman training. So she's a skilled military person. So they have specialties, except her, she's a generalist. And that's what I mean. I know they don't have superpowers, but they're all really good at one thing. And I was just trying to figure out what one thing she had. A crossbow with a video recorder that (laughs) analyzes the battle for her. Boom. Done. (laughs) Then we have Breaker, who's obviously good at communications. And he's French. He likes bubblegum. And Heavy Duty, played by a gentleman whose name I just, I'm going to show him the respect of not butchering the pronunciation, but it's Mr. Echo from Lost for Lost fans. And he's he's supposed to be British. I know he has an accent and Americans, I don't know, British, South African, I don't know, it's all the same to me. I guess one of the things we've been talking about, we got a French guy, we got Heavy Duty, he's not American. One of the things we find out about the Joes, and I know people with certain political leanings, they wanted to read more into this than I think there was, but they complained that they're not a real American heroes, they're an international force. That does have some grounding in the comics, does it? I remember in the 90s, it moved to more of a NATO-like force than just real American heroes. Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, I'm not as familiar with some of the later comics. Certainly earlier on, they were American. They had their counterparts in the Soviet Union, the October Guard. So it was very much, for this movie, kind of the modernization of it being the international anti-terrorist type group, which I think works fine for 2009. Hawk goes through like, hey, we started this. It started out with 10 nations jumping in, and now it's up to 23 or whatever numbers he threw out there. So I think that's fine. I think that works in 2009 to have it not just the Americans out against all Cold War type enemies that are threatened the American way. That works fine. I had no problem with that. And I'm going to give it credit because while I appreciate a diverse cast, there's a fine line between diversity and pandering. And sometimes I feel that movies add diversity just to increase international box office appeal or to appeal to a specific demographic of the audience. But because of the comic book background, and we were even talking about it last week, we had the Chinese tunnel digger and we had the African-American basketball player. Yeah, they're stereotypes, but they're multiracial stereotypes. So it always felt authentic to me that G.I. Joe would be international. 
Plus, honestly, coming out in 2009, after the entire invasion of Iraq, do we really want it to seem like America is going to unilaterally send a task force to stop people? Or do we want them to work with world powers, which is going to appeal more to the audience? I think that making them a NATO force does help the marketability of the film, but it just feels a bit more right to me. Yes, and if this is the not-too-distant future, this is how it would be. Yeah, you're right, Arnie. Unilateralism, especially coming right after the Iraqi war, number two, and all that, yeah, not a good thing to be promoting at this point. You know, it's funny, Arnie, you mentioned Bayformers earlier, because when this action scene came on, and quite frankly, I enjoyed it a lot. I liked where it came in near the beginning of the movie. We started getting some action fairly quickly. It was an intense battle, etc., etc. But Michael Bay really came to mind. I kind of feel like this movie has certain scenes with guest director Michael Bay. Wasn't the case, but it was kind of interesting. And obviously not a shock, considering these are two Hasbro properties we're kind of comparing with that analogy. Obviously, success of Transformers led directly to G.I. Joe. Again, this came out the same year as the second Transformers film. Transformers 1, big hit. Well, it's almost the Marvel approach. Why make one when you can make two? They have two properties, release them the same summer. One obviously far more successful than the other, but a great way to go. That said, I'm gonna say that the action here is better than the Transformers because it doesn't have that Bay effect. In the Transformers films, all of them, one of my big complaints was, I can't tell what the hell is going on. <laughs> I never had that problem in this. Now, we haven't talked much about the director here, but this is Steven Summers, who has done a lot of action films before this one. Primarily, I'd say he's known for The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. He carried over several actors from those films here that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. He also did a film I really like, one of his earlier ones, Deep Rising. He did Van Helsing, we can forgive him for that. But <laughs> he certainly has an action background that I think is serving him well here, and yeah, I at no point during any of these action scenes feel like it's too much close-up, too much shaky cam, too in the face. This feels rote, it feels exciting, but nothing here stands out to me. But that's good because nothing's standing out in either a good or bad way. I'm just enjoying what I'm seeing. No, I know this came out the same year as Avatar, but this wasn't a 3D feature, was it? No, oh, this, this G.I. Joe movie, absolutely not, no. Okay. There was just little things that I thought were weird during the action. Occasionally it would slow down, do this little slow motion thing as you saw like the weird laser pulsar rays hitting a helicopter, then it'd speed up and explode. I know sometimes in the 3D films they slow it down so you could just see it kind of hover there. You're right, Arnie. It's road action. I don't feel that engaged by it. It's adequate. Yeah. So by being adequate, for me, it's better than Bay. To me, that is a mark that has been fulfilled. To not be as bad as Bayformers. Okay. A high bar we're setting here. He already put the last movie above Transformers, the movie, so at least, <laughs> at least Artie's being consistent here. Yes. <laughs> But we've talked through the Joes. Cobra also has a large team. Jerry, you just mentioned the last movie, and one of my complaints about the last movie was the large cast and the way they're used, the way they're introduced. This movie, when you look at it, has a fairly large cast of named active characters. I could take the G.I. Joe force. You've got 
McCullen and all his troops and Baroness and Storm Shadow. But if that's not enough, we're also going to introduce Zartan, the Master of Disguise. He gets very little to do here, but he has quite a bit of screen time early on. I do love they set up some foreshadowing here. He's sitting around studying a book on American politics. I feel like there could have been some good comedic scenes, the way this actor plays Zartan. He's kind of frivolous, and he doesn't take anything seriously. He ends up not doing a lot. You see, I think they need to set up his face early on, so when you get that surprise at the end, you know what's going on. And this is Arnold Vuslu, who was the mummy in the mummy films. So he also played Darkman in the directed DVD Darkman sequels. So I've seen him quite a bit. He's a competent actor. I'd never say, oh my God, Arnold Vuslu's in that. I got to see it. But he does fine here. Similar to Destro, Zartan's one of those characters that when you think about him from the comics and the cartoon, you kind of scratch your head and wonder, okay, how are you going to make these characters live action without being ridiculously laughable? Yes, how is his skin going to turn blue? <laughs> exactly. You know, Zartan's a master of disguise in the comics, but he can't be in the sunlight, at least for the first few episodes, and then it doesn't bother me. You know, there's a lot of things that's like, okay, how does that character work in quote-unquote real life? And I think, obviously, McCullen's easy, because he's not wearing the metal mask for 90% of the movie, so you don't have to even really worry about that. But what do we do to make Zartan truly a master of disguise without being silly? Well, I think nanomites, we'll get to that later, but I mean, here he's just kind of putting on the costumes, mimicking people, learning their gestures. You know, he's kind of how I'd expect a spy-like guy to do that. It's not even silly Mission Impossible where they have a rubber face. So I kind of appreciated where they started with Zartan as not being some turns blue and cloaks in and out. He's like partially magical. So I'm going with the take so far. And I think they use him fairly well without throwing Zartan in my face. It's not like a, hey, this is G.I. Joe, this is Zartan. Look, you guys know Zartan, right? Here he is. What I do like, though, and even though this was done rushed with the writer's strike looming, I feel that every character on the Cobra side has a very specific purpose in McCullen's plot. Zartan's going to replace the president. The doctor is creating the nanomites. Storm Shadow is the muscle. The Baroness, well, she's really hot, so why not have her around? She's able to weaponize the warheads, which they can't do on their own. I mean, Storm Shadow, I'm probably never going to say there's too many ninjas in a film. So... Especially not cool ones like him. I just don't know why this is the Storm Shadow Wears Parada. I thought maybe at first this was rain. Why did they dress him up so much? This guy's got some fancy duds that he's wearing as a ninja. You learn in his backstory, he's vain. I thought it was really cool, though. I mean, he was just smooth and bad in all ways. Now, they dropped some lines that Storm Shadow trained the Baroness, like we see her take someone out and mentions a line, and, and Storm Shadow's like, if your husband touches you again, I'll kill him, but she's with Destro and with the bear, like, what has she got going on with Storm Shadow? This is like one triangle, this has become a square now, there's four people involved, I'm having a hard time following it. The thing with Storm Shadow is not romantic. He says if he touches you again, I'll kill him because McCullen told me to. Their relationship was he refers to her as you were one of my best students, which again, comic book cartoon wise, I don't think that's ever been the case. She's not a ninja. She's a soldier in her own right, a mercenary, whatever. But this movie's kind of setting it up that I guess with the mind control that one of the reasons she went from being sweet little Anna that was just going to marry a U.S. military soldier, she's actually a skilled assassin in her own right. Okay, makes sense that Storm Shadow's the one that taught her the skill. So she tries to attack him, I guess, just to show that, hey, I'm getting closer. It was a little bit of a game, but certainly nothing romantic. He's there just to do McCullen's bidding. 
Okay, I took it as kind of a romantic thing. You kind of have that little tussle, so you end up in each other's arms, but there is no romance between these two. Okay. I took it the way Jerry's describing it as well. I mean, she's in love with enough people. She's in love with Duke. She's married to her husband. She's sleeping with Destro. Yeah, we didn't need Storm Shadow in on this. Well, it's clear that she's only married to the Baron because that's part of the plot. They're using what he can do with his lab to weaponize him. Why can't McCullen do him? I don't think that we know that McCullen can't. I think they need to weaponize it in a way to make it look like, for sure, it's terrorists that have done it. It's thin. It's thin. Very thin. I recognize that. That's a long-range plan. You're going to woo this guy, get him to fall in love with you, so one day (laughs) we can break into his particle accelerator to weaponize some weapons. We're talking about an organization that is changing a man's face to take over the presidency. This is a long-range plan. Most of all, though, she doesn't even use her feminine wiles or his feelings for her to make him do it. They basically break in and put a gun to his head and say, we're going to kill all the people around you. They could have done that without marrying him. True. (laughs) But, hey, I said they did some things right around the time of a writer's strike. I'm not going to say this script is bulletproof. It has major plot holes, especially the more convoluted Cobra's plot gets, the less it really makes sense. And I say the same thing about the backstory. I can actually go with all of the craziness that is Duke and Anna were in love and Anna's brother is the doctor and all of that, which I described in the plot summary. It's convoluted as hell, but I can go with it. It is what it is. And it's how Ripcord and Duke get in the Joes. You don't just go up and say, I want to be a Joe. You have to be recruited. And they weren't recruiting. But because he knows her as Anna when no one else knows her, they're willing to give him a chance. I'm not sure that ever helps because later on, Breaker comes in and goes, I have a picture. But... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he never gives them any information about Anna. Like, he should be held for treason. He obviously knows something, but Duke never lets it out. Well, no, no, he lets in on it within five, ten minutes of them looking at her picture. Right when he first gets to the pit, he only sits on it for about five minutes. But you're right, he's like, yeah, you know, her name's Anna. Things have changed the last four years. He gave them nothing useful from what she's doing now. I know her first name. (laughs) He didn't even mention the last name. Her name's Anna. She was a blonde then. Oh, well, hey, that solves everything. Go find the records of any blonde that's changed her hair to black, and we're in on it. Well, they do have a database that could scan every photo on every server, but apparently Facebook wasn't that popular in 2009, because that would have made the search real easy. It was MySpace, and it kept getting bogged down by the autoplay MP3s. And I do love their training montage, by the way. A cameo from Brendan Fraser, again from The Mummy. Yeah, what is he doing in this film? He begged to be on it because it was G.I. freaking Joe. I mean, he does look like a G.I. Joe. Does he even have a name here? Yeah, he's Sergeant Stone. Okay, I don't know who that is. Was that a toy? There have been a couple different Lieutenant Stone, Sergeant Stones, and various incarnations. I think it was one of those things like, hey, Brendan Fraser really wants to be in this. Let's find this little role for him, and let's give him a G.I. Joe name that's not going to step on anything else. I like him in here. He's funny. Yeah. He's lightweight. He's pulling the same kind of charisma he has from The Mummy. I actually think that the scenes with him have a great energy. I like it when Heavy Duty says they're not Joes, they're jokes, and it comes back. I actually like this training montage. It's done with an upbeat version of Bang a Gong. It's a 
fun little scene. Back to the relationships, I was fine with all of that as tenuous and strained as it may be, because I could follow a logical plot with the only coincidence being that Duke just so happened to be carrying the warheads that Anna just so happened to be going to steal. But the second coincidence that I just cannot abide, because it's one too many, it's the coincidence that just pushes me over the edge, is that Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes also have a history, which we're also going to tell you in flashback. The problem is, I love the damn fight scenes between the ninja kids so much that I'm having fun, (laughs) even though the logical part of my brain is screaming at me how stupid this is from a plot perspective. I'm right there with you, Arnie. One, you go into this flashback, I don't understand why there's a white homeless kid in Japan, but okay. Escape to the naval base. Yes. But... (laughs) Ultimately, I get that they're trying to build up this rivalry so there's some kind of emotion when we get to this final scene where they sword fight and replicate the Phantom Menace fight with electrical pulses all around them. I don't need it. Like, okay, let's just have two ninjas fight. This backstory, I don't know. If you want to go in the next film and do a Storm Shadow or Snake Eye-centric film, then yes, then have some backstory. But this is one backstory too many in this film. I don't need them. Okay, one's a Joe, one's a Cobra. That's all I need. Yeah. I'm right there. The G.I. Joe fan in me says there's almost no way they could have made this movie without making that more obvious and going into it. Because really, it's the best folklore that G.I. Joe has. Everything from the silent issue to everything that's been done with Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow since, that's your best G.I. Joe hook. I agree with you, though. If they knew for sure they were getting a second movie, which they obviously set this up for a lot of sequel potential, why not explore it more there? But to be perfectly honest with you, I thought the way they handled the folklore there, they did it very well. To Arnie's point, I thought the little Jackie Chan fight between the two kids in the kitchen was really good. And to me, it didn't take me out of anything. It worked very well. If there's one too many flashbacks, it comes later when they go to the military party where he proposes. That one you could have gotten rid of. Well, I'm not saying there's too many flashbacks, as in the number of flashbacks in the way it's told. I'm saying that to have a movie that starts in the 1600s, then jumps to, say, 2015, but then keeps going back to the early 2000s, and then jumps back to the 90s or the 80s for a totally parallel, unrelated to any part of the plot thing, just to set up a personal grudge between the two characters. It was extraneous, and Jerry, from what you you just said yeah i again like it from the fanboy perspective as a kid i love ninjas and snake eyes was a big reason why i love ninjas but in this movie the story they're telling it's too much it's indulgent is the word i would use and it's fun but it's undisciplined storytelling so i'm torn on the end result I'm thinking of this film kind of like X-Men. You have these big teams where everyone's kind of the star. Everyone has their favorite Joe. Everyone has their favorite Cobra, just like the X-Men and the Brotherhood of Mutants. But you think about those X-Men films, you have one character that the film is really about. Those X-Men films are really Wolverine films. This film, I think it's really a Duke film. I think. So I don't know why I'm getting flashbacks for Destro and for Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes. You could have that team dynamic, but from a storytelling point of view, you still have to have one character that that is the story about, that he's going to guide the action along. It's undisciplined. There's just too much going on. I prefer to be more concise and trim and efficient. So before we get too far away from it, Arnie, I thought about you when I was watching this. I even thought about this when it was in theaters. What would you think about some of the CGI in this film? 
The CGI in this film, well, it's from the guy who did The Mummy. And at no point (laughs) in The Mummy do you think that's really a face made out of sand. And in this film, at no point do I believe those hyper suits are really people moving. It all has a surreal unreality to it, but none of it is laughable. Some of it is obvious, but it creates an atmosphere and a style. And in a movie where you have Marlon Wayans, I know we brought up Star Wars a lot in this, but basically being the Jar Jar Binks of the G.I. Joe universe, making a joke in every single scene, I can kind of go with goofy CGI when it has goofy characters. Again, the tone here, either do this ultra-realistic or play up the comic book effects. And I feel like they're trying to do a little bit of both and don't do either real well. I think the kind of bad-looking CGI I could have gone more with if they were playing up that cartoon aspect of this. I don't find it so bad that it ruins the film for me. It's distracting at times, especially those Delta Six suits. You know, talk about Marlon Wayans putting his face on a baby. Well, here they put it on a robot and expect us to believe that's really him in a suit. It wasn't? (laughs) I know, hard to believe. We get this training montage, and then Cobra drills into the secret Joe base to get the warheads back. So were the Joes just going to sit on the warheads and never plan to actually deliver them to NATO? Or did they know someone was coming after them, so they were keeping them in safekeeping? Yeah, that's a good question. You'd have to think with the whole training sequence that perhaps they've been there for days. and Days minimum, like more like weeks. (laughs) Maybe at some point off screen, we just figured, hey, that's the safest place for him because nobody knows where the pit is. But Jacob, you mentioned those drills that they come in were awful. When they're coming in on their plane, getting ready to land into the pit where they're just flying over the sand. Oh, that is so bad. Even in theaters, and it looks really bad on a Blu-ray on a 55-inch, 120-hertz refresh rate screen. They look awful on that. But there's a couple times where even I almost was taken out by the CGI. I guess I just kind of went with it as a product of the time. But yeah, in the same summer as Transformers 2, and say what you will about that movie, and I did, (laughs) it had some damn good CGI. Maybe all the good teams were working on Transformers, and this was the B-list. This is what happens when you outsource your VFX. This is why everyone has green avatars on Facebook right now. So Cobra infiltrates the base. In General Hawk, Dennis Quaid, he's talking to his secretary, and this knife comes through her chest from Zartan. It looks bad. Again, it's weird seeing a Joe, even though I don't think this secretary has an AI. I don't even know if she's a real Joe. No, that's CoverGirl. Oh, oh, God. No, you can't yeah. kill CoverGirl. No, you can, but what's impressive about it is that from the early cartoons, that's someone who was named and did stuff. She's a good one to kill. I wish they would have named her in this film. Well, she was easy, breezy, beautiful to kill. She's a good character to kill. There's no allegiance to her. I can't imagine anybody calling CoverGirl their favorite G.I. Joe character, but you at least know who she was. She wasn't red shirt number five. And yet, why is Zartan, the master of disguise, the crux of their entire plot, sent into a mission where he could be killed or captured? Because Arnold Vosloo was on set and they're like, ah, we'll have Zartan do something action-y instead of just be incognito. I'm not sure why he didn't leave with them versus just, hey, we're going to leave you here stranded and you just pretend to be a sheik with a camel. What was his plan of getting back? 
his escape is to kill an Arab, dress up like him, and walk the camel back somewhere. Again, it's a cartoon moment, but we just saw Covergirl of all Joes stabbed through the chest. How do you go from this gritty violence to this joke about Zartan winking at the screen as he walks away with a camel? Well, the joke there is double. Not only is it really stupid that that's Zartan's escape, but he's the mummy, and he's going to ride a camel. Oh, I get the joke now. <laughs> I guess if they think they're being clever here, it's one of the moments where you hear his whistling song that tells you what you probably already knew at the end of the movie. Yeah, he does that a couple of times throughout the film. Yeah. It's a nice little tell. I will say it is a good button for this film that they've set up, and I just thought it was a character thing. It was better than him at the end of the movie just looking at the camera and say, hey, I actually got away with it. (laughs) (laughs) But now, I don't want to go into too much detail about Cobra's plot because I really believe that it's very, very convoluted and it makes no sense. But they want to destroy the Eiffel Tower. I think this is the best scene in the film. Destro, the French screwed his ancestors over, so he's going to screw the French. He's going to destroy the Eiffel Tower. One of the things I like that I think it's pretty clear that his grandmaster plan isn't to destroy France. It's, I want to demonstrate what's at stake here. Hey, you know what? I'll destroy Paris just for fun. I don't think his goal was anything to do with the Eiffel Tower. That was just for kicks. Oh, I completely understand that. It was to create terror. It was analogous to the World Trade Center, right? They want to destroy a monument. And really, I know for a fact, movie directors sit around and go, well, what can we destroy? What about the Empire State Building? Godzilla did it. What about the White House? Independence Day did it. They're always looking for new monuments they can destroy in fun ways. So the Eiffel Tower, good target. I do feel that this is the most Michael Bay moment of the film. Armageddon. Blow up every other country but America. Transformers. We have all these big battles going off in other countries. I think there's something that he would find funny about blowing up the Eiffel Tower and tearing it down. I do feel like this is a very Michael Bay choice to take down the Eiffel Tower. There's something about, haha, we're Americans. We're going to take down your most prized monument. Well, since we're talking Paris now, let's talk the acceleration suits for a moment. Because one of the things that I think was revealed early on, maybe it was a Super Bowl commercial or what have you, or just rumor pictures leaked, people were really upset by these suits. And it was like, oh, you know what, they've got these robot suits, it's not G.I. Joe, it's so stupid, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things I will give the film credit for is setting it up as, eh, we got a couple of these, it's experimental, it's kind of a nice suit to have in battle. But, you know, they're clearly not in them all the time. And I really actually liked, and maybe I'm simple this way, I guess, when it comes to my action scenes, but I liked how they were used in the sense that it did give me something that I've not seen in any other action film specifically like that. And yet, a year before, we have Iron Man, so when I see this, it's not so ridiculous for me to see this and think, hey, that's kind of cool. I just saw Iron Man make half a billion dollars the year before, and they're the same suit. I was at Toy Fair when they showed us this scene. Long before the public saw it, we, the toy press, got to see it. And I heard the rumblings of some G.I. Joe fans there going, G.I. Joe members don't need suits, they're just the best. To me, a non-G.I. Joe fan, I agree with everything you just said, Jerry. If you wanted to have a guy chasing a car and didn't give him a technological reason why he could, I would be upset. So I'm fine with the suits, but that's what I understand the Joe fan argument to be, is that Joes shouldn't need suits. They should just be good unless you're suit guy. 
which is ridiculous because G.I. Joe is all about my vehicle, my tank, <laughs> my jetpack. <laughs> Though I do find it funny that when this chase starts, it's not the dudes in the suit that go after this SUV. It is Snake Eyes, just the regular old ninja that chases it down <laughs> before them. But I didn't know there was a big kerfuffle about these suits i don't think it's a big deal it makes sense in this film they've set it up as sci-fi it's not a big scene they use these suits for a specific reason to run down and chase cars you're not going to do that on your own again i just wish the cgi was better i would have been able to enjoy this more i I, again this is the one scene that i think i really do enjoy you get scarlet on a motorcycle trying to chase this car down again there's some shifty cgi instead of some actual stunts being done but all right you got snake eyes hanging off this car trying to get the Baroness and Storm Shadow this chase through this building as they're trying to shoot off this missile and this is I think the most exciting scene in the film now Jacob I disagree with you a little bit on the CGI on the accelerator suits I didn't think that was half bad but you're right the motorcycle that could have been from Tron or something I thought that was pretty weak and very obvious nothing about the motions were fluid or or maybe they were too fluid I should say it didn't seem natural or real but whatever she's actually not doing that for very long so I, I forgave that I'm going to go with Jacob. Those acceleration suits, they're exactly half bad. 50%. (laughs) None of the motions in those suits look any better than Cover Girl's Knife. They don't move realistically. At no point do I think they're in the physical location they're supposed to be. But the scene's exciting, so I go with it. And yeah, I will agree. This is the high point of the film, especially when the nanomites start getting going. It looks completely fake, but I like the look of when nanomites start destroying things, be it people or places. It's like a baking soda volcano of CGI. Now, what I don't understand is when Snake Eyes is on that Hummer, if he could have gotten underneath it and shot the tires why didn't they do that so early on they couldn't have gotten that close to the eiffel tower it didn't seem like it should have been that hard for him to make them crash the hummer Again, I find it kind of terrifying as this whole chase is going on. This Hummer, for most of the part, yeah, it finally does crash, but cars are bouncing off of it. They're shooting missile. I kind of feel bad for the French. A lot of people die. They don't show it, but there's a lot of explosions. Reducing a mime, which again, I feel is a very bay thing to do is have this silly mime while all these explosions are going on. I was surprised that they actually took out the Eiffel Tower because post 9-11, people are very sensitive about these things. Now, admittedly, the Eiffel Tower, at most, there might have been a few tourists on top, but... (laughs) Well, they even dropped the line that they've evacuated it. Okay, so there's no tourists on top. There's people on the ground, of course, but you can maybe assume they got everybody off of it. Because there was a car chase, they decided to evacuate it? When did they decide to evacuate it? When the missile was flying towards it? (laughs) <laughs> well, no, no, the breaker drops the line early, so I mean, heck, they could have called somebody and said, hey, someone's going to blow it up, you got to evacuate it, who knows, off screen, but breaker drops the line. But yeah, they do go there, and I'm kind of glad they do. It punctuates the end of the scene, and it puts the Joes in a low place. It says they can never go back to France, because they didn't stop it. That's right, you get punished for what you couldn't do. It's a weird scene, so the Joes get arrested, Ripcord gets knocked out because he tries to explain himself to the police. Apparently the LAPD and the French police are very similar. He is American, they are French, I'll go with that. Well, he's wearing a suit that obviously has rockets on it too, so I mean, I think it's (laughs) an obvious thing of like, hey, these people had to have done this. What I find weird, though, is Snake Eyes sneaks off into an alleyway and he starts doing Morse code because he won't talk. What was the point of that? Again, it feels like an extra scene that maybe there's some cut scene there, but I don't know if that's supposed to tell us that he's communicating to General Hawk about what's happened or what. Just these weird little scenes like that. Again, this could have been a little bit tighter. 
I think so because I gathered when they're in prison and they're in that cell, the anti-terrorist group or whatever, that they weren't exactly being given the opportunity to go make their phone call. So how else would have Hawk known? I guess there was some, hey, the, they said they'd let you go. I assumed Snake Eyes got a message out to him and then Hawk reached out and that's how the president found out. Contact the French ambassador. So I think they connected as well as it needed to be. It's not that big of a plot point. The even crazier thing, though, is before they're arrested, they hook a computer up to a dead dude's brain. I saw this in Wild Wild West and it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's not any better here. Oh, yeah. This was one of those eye-rolling moments. And Breaker is smart enough to know the body is bugs. He's going to go, no, I didn't get anything. I really got it, guys. <laughs> No, the stupid thing was that they hooked a computer up to a dead dude's brain to get the last few images he's ever seen. Which they will later triangulate to find the hideout. And the odds are of thug number 27 even actually ever seeing Destro? Yeah, sure that he's totally in on it. But because of this, they find out they're in the Arctic. And then we cut to a commercial, right? We get this obvious cartoon polar bear in the snow. He's going to dig up a Coke. I thought I'd been watching a commercial the whole time. I kept wondering, okay, so that was a toy for the Rise of Cobra G.I. Joe line. Okay, that's a toy. I'm sure they had breaker suits or something. But yes, it does get weird with this polar bear. Again, is this gritty G.I. Joe where people are actually going to die? Or are we going to have Coca-Cola bear jokes now? Really, I thought he might actually pull out a Coke. We have had (laughs) so many product placements in this movie. From the computers they use to the cell phones. I mean... I'm surprised the brain scan device didn't have a Nokia logo on it. So really, when I saw that bear, I thought he'd pull out a Coke. Now, I thought we'd then cut to somebody watching a TV screen with the bear pulling out the Coke. At no point (laughs) did I think this was real. But no, there's a polar bear atop the Cobra base. Which Joe is he, Jerry? If there's cover girl, who's polar bear? I think that was Galobulus. (laughs) (laughs) The polar bear was Galobulus or Nemesis Enforcer or somebody. Duke is captive, and they take him in the Gungan sub to the base. Which was highly inspired, apparently, from the film Thunderball. Yeah, it's very James Bondian all over. From the underwater base to the convoluted plot, anytime there's people fleeing the Eiffel Tower, I'm in a view to a kill. Is there a Bond film that has a robot fish with cameras in its eyes that could spy on the underwater cobra side out? God, I'm trying to think. (laughs) I know rocket ships were eaten by bigger rocket ships. A boat was eaten by a giant sub, and that could be seen as a fish. Yeah, I was going to say, Spy I Love Me had to have had something like that. But from this point on, it's primarily action until we get to the big reveals at the end. And the action, either you go with it or you don't. I'll admit that I end up going numb here. With Marlin flying a jet earlier, he said he wanted to be a pilot to shoot down the warheads. With Celtic speak, it's voice activated, (laughs) but you don't use English. You can't say fire. You have to know the Celtic term. Okay, you're going to fly a Mach 6 and shoot down these nano mites. All right, I'm willing to go with you. Fine. But they just push it too far. Now it's a Celtic voice activated super jet. Again, uh, it just pushes it too far for me. You asked what Scarlet's superpower was. Her high level of intelligence would explain why she would know the Celtic language for anything. (laughs) Yes, I could go to Google and use their translation function and know that. Not in the four seconds it took her to do it. I've got an LTE iPhone. 
<laughs> no, you're right, Arnie. I really felt like this was the attack on the Death Star 2 and Return of the Jedi, except it's an underwater base. They got this pulse ray cannon that has to charge up and then lets out these big explosions. And again, I'm just thinking, okay, so these are the new toys that are coming out for this movie. Just so much is thrown at you with this end battle. I'm just not going with it. I don't feel engaged at all with this end battle. You said Return of the Jedi. I'm going to once again reference Phantom Menace, where <laughs> at the end, there's a four-pronged attack. There's a aerial battle, a ground battle, another ground battle, and a sword fight. And what is the only part of the Phantom Menace's climax that I really love? The sword fight. What is the only part of G.I. Joe's climax I really love? The sword fight. <laughs> You know, Arnie, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I read the novelization. One of the things that really stuck with me as being different in the book, and it was actually also in the comic book adaptation, is that after Snake Eyes stabs Storm Shadow, but before he falls, in the book, he says to Snake Eyes, I didn't kill our master, and then he falls over. And that's kind of why Snake Eyes is kind of, you know, his shoulders drop. You know, as much as you can tell in his mask, he looks a little remorseful, and I think he even drops to his knees or something to where he's just like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I think they just removed the line. I think it was recorded, but you don't know what he's really reacting to. You assume it's just because, hey, he was once my brother and you know I'm sad that it came to this, but in the book, they dropped that line, I didn't kill our master, which is consistent with any time that story is told. People think Storm Shadow killed their master, but he didn't. It's intriguing because he's left with that and you don't know, okay, what's this mean? Snake Eyes just killed him, right? I kind of took Snake Eyes falling over. He almost talks at that moment. You hear him moaning. And I just thought that was the fight of his life, and it took him all out of him. I personally was a big fan of everything, except for when you're seeing Heavy Duty fighting the ship-to-ship battle underwater. That part I didn't care too much for. Everything that went on in the base, I thought was fine, which obviously included the sword fight. Even Duke getting away with Baroness in the reveal there, I thought worked fine. If you accept that, hey, Baroness and Duke were once together, okay, fine. That all worked because there's at least some plot being pushed forward. The underwater battle between the subs, to me, that was just filler. I didn't need that to that degree. I didn't need a lot of what they gave. I would have preferred a smaller number of really exciting fights, like one thing going on in the base where maybe Snake Eyes rescued Duke and Duke and Snake Eyes had to fight their way out and had individual fights, but in the same geographic location. And then one attack maybe somehow they shoot the warhead to fire back on the terror drone or something this number of attacks becomes very confusing and after a movie that has been a lot of action it's an overdose it's hard to keep it all straight i don't keep it all straight and the sugar high that i've been feeling in this movie is wearing off very quickly and i'm ready for it to end and thankfully it does a few minutes later Oh, but we get the big reveal about the Doctor. Reveal? We get Reveals, capital S. I mean, first we get, in case you didn't know that McCullen was Destro, he is going to have his face turned into a metal mask. So here's the thing. I've complained a lot about the tone, and it goes from gritty to cartoony. This did not bug me at all, which surprised myself. I would have feared more if this was going to be the man in the Iron Mask. The fact that Destro, the dude with the metal head that, in the cartoon, gets an animated head. It's not like a mask he's wearing. I go with it. I don't know why. Maybe I am numb from being under freezing <laughs> water for so long. But I kind of like that this is how they went with Destro. If you're going to come up with a reason for a dude with a metal head, yeah, stupid little robot germs inside of you made it metal. Okay, cool. 
Just call the nanomites midichlorians because they cause everything. <laughs> but here's my only problem. I'll go with nanomites, give him a metal head, and it's not a mask. I would have preferred a mask. I would have preferred him donning the mask out of shame for his burned face. Again, it would work better if he was a pretty boy and they went like the Dr. Doom route where his scarring, he couldn't take it. And so he wore a mask. My biggest problem is once they give him the metal mask, he looks like a member from the Blue Man Group. I agree with both of you. I like how they explained, so to speak, why a guy would have a fully functional metal face. Because in the cartoon, it was a mask, yet somehow it was fully animated with his motions. It's like any Green Goblin or anything you see in a cartoon of a comic book character. Somehow the mask is fully articulated to every motion of his face. So I liked it. But then, Arnie, you're right. I like the concept, but then he looks like that. (laughs) (laughs) Again, if he was a strong, big, menacing guy, good-looking or not, but just someone who's physically imposing, maybe you could have made it look awesome. My other problem is that the doctor injects him with nanomites to make him submissive. And honestly, one of the things that I always liked about Destro was he was strong-willed. Even before the Serpentor betrayal that we kind of talked about last week, he was a strong-willed individual who did what he thought was right. By making him no better than the Viper toadies around, I think it really undermines that character to a massive degree. I don't know how you take him from the leader to the second in command in another believable way but I would think that there should be something that allows him to maintain free will and for the doctor to still take over well and we do see Zartan do that earlier he's injected with nanomite so he could look like the president but right before they inject him he pulls out a microchip I don't know what it was but whatever the mind control stuff, he takes that and smashes it on the ground and says, I want to keep my own mind. So they did have an out. There's a way they could have done that. But here, Destro really is the victim. I don't know why he would go along with Cobra, except I guess he has to because it's mind control now. Because Cobra Commander kind of screws him over. The doctor, we'll find out he's Cobra Commander, screws him over here. I agree. I mean, the comics certainly had points in time where Cobra Commander used brainwashing techniques on almost everybody at some point, it seems like, to resecure their loyalty. Again, that was never explored in the cartoon. And Arnie, you're right. I mean, Destro should be someone who's so strong and influential and powerful that he should rival Cobra Commander, almost bully him on some levels if he, if he's not doing a good enough job. And I think they could have written this better. I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard. Destro is now a fugitive because they know he's been in on these plots, whatever evidence they've secured by being there. He could have just said, hey, I got to join Cobra because I've got nowhere else to go. I love the angle of, hey, I'm going to heal my face with the nanomites because I'm shamed. They could have done this a dozen different ways, been more true to G.I. Joe folklore, etc. Now, maybe Destro's not even in the movie next week and no one really cares. He has a metal face because he's supposed to and we're not going to see him again. I guess the other problem is, by holding out this long to give him the metal face, is it really surprising anyone? Is there anyone who knows who Destro is that doesn't know this guy's going to become Destro and at the end they go, oh, he's Destro! The bigger shock is, as you alluded to, Jacob, the doctor is going to don the stupidest looking mask in cinematic history and call himself Cobra Commander. Before he puts on that fishbowl, I want to try to understand the doctor or Rex. 
So we get multiple copious flashbacks of Rex and Duke. They're on some mission. Rex goes into this building. He's supposed to get something, and he has five minutes to get whatever it is. He goes in. Dr. Mindbender, of all the stupid characters, they keep that name. That's the worst name. At least he wasn't wearing purple pants with suspenders and no shirt, like the cartoon character. (laughs) And that actor, Kevin J. O'Connor, this guy shows up at everything. He has such a memorable forehead. I know him. (laughs) primarily from Lord of Illusions, the 1990s Clive Barker film. But so many movies, I see that forehead and go, is that? And it is. Uh, That's, I guess, one way to make it in Hollywood, have a prominent forehead. So, Rex, he is seduced by the science of nanomites? I don't understand this turn for him. I don't understand anything here. He's downloading stuff. The place blows up. He somehow lives and he wants to devote his life to these nanomites. Can you guys explain this at all? I think I understand it, but I don't think it was sold well. Because what I understand is, you know, A, if he was involved in that kind of explosion, he obviously had significant trauma that left him kind of insane to go do something crazy like this. But what I didn't think that was sold well was he runs into this bunker, this room, looks at these screens of people's faces getting injected with something, and they practically blow up on screen. And he's like, oh, this is more advanced than anything I've ever seen. All I saw was videos of science experiments that didn't work. So I don't know how he got like so mesmerized by it that quick that he was like, oh, I'm going to get all of this. I'm going to make this work. He didn't see anything that was good. It was all disasters. I get that if he was traumatized by this horrible explosion and felt like Duke and everybody abandoned him and he's going to make them pay because he's all crazy and scarred now. That part I get. I just don't get how the character Rex, the science officer, got to that level of influence so quickly. Listen, I'm going to repeat the refrain I have before. It's poorly written. It's done sloppily and quickly. But if I want to try to do this movie a favor, here's what I'll give it. Is yes, he was the science officer. He's a science geek. He's taken by this nanotech. And after he's scarred, probably took a while to heal in that foreign country. And he ends up finding a weapons maker who could fund his research. The U.S. government probably wouldn't fund it. So he goes to work on the nanomites and that's his passion. All he wants to do is make the nanomites. He doesn't really even quest for control, but he doesn't like that somebody else holds the purse strings. Earlier, he's asking for more money, like a kid asking his dad for an allowance raise. And McCullen is only about the money and isn't willing to give it over until more happens. So since the two's goals don't work, well, then he could just take control using his nanomites and continue his research. Does he want global domination? I don't see that. What I see is he's a science geek who would like to continue to research his science. And if that means death, well, he's not very moral. I guess, I mean, you might want to find a cure for cancer. I don't know if you join Al-Qaeda to get the funding for it. (laughs) Seems a little weird to me. (laughs) Line of the podcast goes to Jacob. (laughs) I guess if this big reveal is Rex is Cobra Commander, I would like to feel, I guess, some kind of emotion. It doesn't have to be as powerful as, Luke, I am your father, but... (laughs) 
develop this Rex character more. We spend so much damn time in flashbacks. Cut out Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes. Cut out 16th century France and really develop this Rex character more so when we get to this downfall, it should have more power instead of a, ooh, look, maybe retricked you moment because he's wearing a wig. Furthermore, if you have nanobites that can change your face to metal, can change your face to look like the president, can mind control you, it can't fix respiratory problems. It's the Darth Vader voice. If he talked like the kid from Third Rock from the Sun, would you find him imposing? I can't find him imposing when he has a fishbowl on his head. That's just the worst mask ever. And what's weird is, and Jerry, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you mentioned this last week. There was like the 90s version of the Cobra Commander where he had this metal helmet, and it almost seems like that, except for some reason they make it clear. Do you think that's what they were going for? You guys call it a fishbowl. I think it's a bedpan. I mean, I think it's worse than a fishbowl. I don't know what they're going for. I mean, it doesn't remind me of any version of the toys. Even the one I was referencing earlier was more like a motorcycle helmet type thing where the eyes were exposed, but it was like a helmet. I mean, it looked like a helmet. I guess there was a different figure that came out a few years later that was more of like a, just a clear shield, but answering my own question, I think what they're trying to go for was Cobra Commander's traditional silver face. Just this plexiglass, metal, something that's one-way viewable that covers his entire face. He just obviously didn't have the helmet to top it off. You know, you guys are calling this a prequel. This was like his bad outfit before he gets the good one that we've been seeing in the trailers for next week. The one next week is very recognizable. So I guess guess this was just the, you gotta break a few eggs before you can make an omelet? I don't know. It's bad. I just want to know how the studio suits were like, snake eyes, no. Fishbowl, yes. Maybe because the fishbowl and bedpan was only in the last two and a half minutes? I don't know. <laughs> I just remember this is the one toy I stuck out to me with this Rise of Cobra line. I'm like, really? That's Cobra Commander? That's really weird. It's funny you say that because I bought that figure because I thought the figure was a lot better looking than what was actually in the movie. But either way, although I'll take the face mask, but why did you give him that voice? You gave him Destro's voice, I think. That was a terrible voice for Cobra Commander. I'm just glad it wasn't Starscream because that thing grates on me. So Jerry, Jacob, do you recommend G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra? Jerry. I will say that this movie is flawed. There are clearly things, and we've been talking them for the last hour and some change. There's clearly some things that this movie shortcutted, plot holes, could have done a little bit better. But at the same time, when I think about the original G.I. Joe cartoon and even some of the goofy, way out there type things that they did in the comics, I don't think how this movie told the legend of G.I. Joe was that far off. I think the movie's fun. I like some of the characters. Even Ripcord and Scarlet with their little kind of romantic, flirtatious talk, but not really, was at least minimal enough that I could hold my breath for a second and just get past it. So there's nothing about this movie that offends me as the G.I. Joe fan. I think by and large, a lot of G.I. Joe fans probably don't accept it with open arms, but I think it was an interesting take, and I think it was a fun movie, like I said, and I've seen this movie, golly, by now six or seven times. I enjoy it a little bit more every time I see it. I really like this movie. Was it the best take that someone could have come up with on G.I. Joe? No. Maybe it'll get a little bit better next time, but it was done well enough that I'm very optimistic for what we're going to get next week. Hated that it was delayed, but again, you know, that gave us perhaps the opportunity to do it as a now-playing crew, and I'm really looking forward to next week, so I absolutely recommend this movie. I think if you just like a good, fun action movie, that you should check this out. I would definitely recommend it. Jacob, 
I'm definitely able to separate myself more from the G.I. Joe fandom this time around than I was with that cartoon. That cartoon was such a big part of my life. Yes, when it ignored certain characters and gave me all these new ones I didn't care about, that was a problem here. So many years later, I'm able to really just approach this as almost a newbie. Okay, yeah, G.I. Joe, that's something from my youth. Here's going to be a new take. It's live action. It's the rise of Cobra. So to me, this is a prequel. The characters are going to be in a different place. So I don't have any issues with really Duke or Cobra. It's more of the execution like we've talked about with the awful looking mask. But more so, it's the storytelling. The tone never sets right with me. Is this a live action cartoon where things are going to be lasers and weird floating airplanes that aren't here in real life? Or is this going to be a more gritty, realistic take where people are actually going to die? And it tries to do both. And for me, though, it never pulls that off convincingly. It's a big tonal shift going back and forth from scene to scene. But my biggest problem is this is just not a tight, concise story. If it was able to be concise and, you know, let's get to the action, let's have the plot points make sense, then, you know, maybe I could have gone with the weird tonal shifts. But for me, there's just so much extra stuff in here. There's too much in here. They needed to cut this and trim it. Get rid of most of these flashbacks. Tell a more concise story. For me, I feel bored and exhausted a little bit. I just want it to end by the time I get to that final Arctic battle. The high point is France and nothing else really sticks out to me. I'm not going to recommend this for one action scene. So this, not recommend, no Joe for this one. I'm the tiebreaker, huh? And it's not an easy decision for me, because this movie is sloppy and loose. The CGI you guys have mentioned, it didn't bother me so much because I think I come from the mummy background on this one, and at no point do I feel it's trying to be real, but that goes to what you were referring to, Jacob, with the tonal confusion of this film. I just have to say this very clearly. This movie is not good. It is not well written. When you watch it, you cannot at some point not think to yourself, this is freaking dumb. But when I watched it the very first time, I remember my reaction. I put it in and Marjorie was chastising me. She's like, how many times must you be burned? Transformers, Transformers 2, now you go to Joe. How many times before you learn? And when we finished watching it, we both kind of went, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. That's not a hearty ring and endorsement, but it's something. So I was curious, coming back to it this time, my memory being not as bad as I'd expected, does that make it recommendable? It's got its flaws, but it's also got some fun. The ninja fights are fantastic. The Paris scene is exciting. Sienna Miller is really hot. On the other hand, Marlon Wayans keeps trying to be funny and failing. It's right on the borderline, but I'm going to just... You're stalling, Artie. You're stalling. <laughs> I'm going to eke this one into recommend. It's the weakest Woo-hoo! of recommend, but and I don't feel proud saying it. I'm actually ashamed <laughs> of myself. My name is Arnie, and I'm going to recommend G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra. I can't say this is a movie I would have returned to or sought out a sequel to, but I'm with you, Jacob, on what you said initially. This next one, it looks pretty good. Now, Bruce Willis has already fooled me once this year. I already thought one Bruce Willis movie could be good. (laughs) I was wrong. But like an abused wife, I come back for more. I don't feel like this is an abusive situation. I really don't because... 
after seeing this film, I feel secure in my not recommend. I had no interest in another G.I. Joe film. But this one, it sold me. Like, that trailer, it looks like it's going for the full-on cartoon feeling that I want. I mean, when Cobra flags are unfurled over the White House, I'm like, oh, I'm seeing that film. That is, like, G.I. Joe the cartoon in live action. So I'm actually very optimistic, not because of past performance, but because it looks like it's just going for what I would want more out of a G.I. Joe, where it's the live action, but it's got a lot going from the cartoon in it and it's going to be able to pull that off i'm hoping to clarify i was saying the abusive relationship was between me and bruce willis not between me and gi joe (laughs) okay bruce willis just keeps beating me well jerry jacob thank you for joining me a reminder to our listeners that gi joe retaliation is out in theaters this friday we'll be back next week with our review and also next week now playing returns to the twice weekly format one week after retaliation hits theaters the remake of the evil dead hits theaters and that is going to kick off our spring donation series it's all about zombies for a ten dollar donation you get Our Evil Dead retrospective series looking at all four Evil Dead films starting next week. And then a couple months after that, you get our review of World War Z, this summer's upcoming Brad Pitt blockbuster zombie thriller based on the book. And for $25, you get our largest number of podcasts ever as you get the entire Return of the Living Dead series. There's five of those, but because... Wait, there's more! We expect those movies not to be very good. We'd like (laughs) to provide some good reviews, at least the later direct-to-video sequels. We're also going to throw in on top of it 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later. It's a mother load of zombie films. Stuart, Jacob, and I concluding the zombie retrospective that we really started last fall when we looked at all the Romero Night of the Living Dead films. Now looking at the alternate sequels with Return of the Living Dead plus Evil Dead, 28 Days Later, and World War Z. All the details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our page at nowplayingpodcast.com. And as with all of our donation series, these podcasts will only be available for a limited time. Plus, we do still have some DVDs available for those who want to get that. It's a separate donation. It will all be described on the webpage. But if you want to hear our Night of the Living Dead series, the only way to get that, as well as all of our previous donation series, Jaws, Child's Play, and so on, are on the last remaining copies we have of the 5th Anniversary DVD. Those things are getting in short supply. So if you want that, head to NowPlayingPodcast.com, click the banner at the top for details. So, Jacob, Jerry, we'll be back next week with G.I. Joe Retaliation, and now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Yo, Yo Joe! Joe! Technically, G.I. Joe does not exist, but if it did, it'd be comprised of the top men and women from the best military units in the world, the Alpha Dogs. When all else fails, we don't. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's time to go bye-bye, or boom-boom! Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another G.I. Joe film. Now that's what I call a challenge! You can hear more movie reviews at our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Well, whoever you are and whatever this unit is, I want in. 
In the archive section, you can find our reviews of the Transformer films, Star Trek movies, the Avenger films, Rambo, Rocky, and more. And all at the push of a button. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. For this I command! While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Okay, now that we're all close friends, let's head for the slaughterhouse. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. We all go home or nobody goes home. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. You will all come with me now. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what's your fee? Snakes don't give for free. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. The Emperor needs us, Commander. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. An itty-bitty-titty paint. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Can you get the word out? No sweat. Then do it. Now Playing's G.I. Joe retrospective series is edited by Ray, Jeff, and Arnie. Their capabilities are beyond anything we've ever encountered. Credit narration by Brock. Bravo, bravo! You are as impressive as ever! Now Playing is not affiliated with Hasbro or Paramount Pictures. G.I. Joe is a property of Hasbro and Paramount Pictures, and no infringement is intended. We were set up right from the start. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. But I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, am I? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I have something I need to do which goes against all orders. So if any of you decide that you have to leave now, I will certainly not hold it against you. Boom. Grab my ankle! Yeah, I didn't see this in theaters either. I was feeling it. I might have been able to go with it. I wasn't hating the idea, even though they came out with these full-body posters where all the Joes are wearing black. Maybe they're really Cobra. That's why this is the Rise of Cobra. Though Scarlet, they had her pose to show off that butt, and that was amazing. But Did that get the Rise of Cobra? That did get a Rise of a Cobra, yes. <laughs> but Grab my ankle! My guess is he was the lawnmower guy. <laughs> Wait a minute, Jacob, you don't remember him? He was in the last movie. <laughs> Along with 83 other characters. <laughs> you know who else was in that last movie? My mom! <laughs> Grab my ankle! You know, Arnie, by the way, since you, since you mentioned that, one of the things that jumped out of me... Jumped out of me, that's good. One of the things that jumped out of me... Was an alien out of the chest. <laughs> exactly. Grab my ankle! Well, the mortgage on an underwater base is expensive, yes. Well, you know what it costs to insure that thing? But Roadblock was in this movie, right? It was... No, heavy that's duty. Heavy Duty. Yeah. Forget it. Heavy Duty. Nope. Nope. Okay. Nope. 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 Right. Arnie. Can't even keep Heavy Duty and Roadblock straight. Please. They they are cousins, but anyway. Oh, <laughs> Maybe not in this universe, since he's obviously British. But Maybe they're like, identical cousins, and that's why I got confused. <laughs> yes.
<laughs> yeah, identical cousins. Is that a thing? <laughs> Patty Duke, man. It's been a while since I've seen Patty Duke. Well played. <laughs> <laughs>